1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Carly Kehoe about her book titled Empire and Emancipation, Scottish and Irish Catholics at the Atlantic Fringe in the time period of 1780 to 1850. The book was published in 2021 from the University of Toronto Press, and it does a lot of different things in it, which I'm sure we're going to get into, um, but primarily focuses on understanding how Scottish and Irish Catholics redefined understandings of what it was to be British um, in colonial landscapes, for example, in Canada, um, but also in Trinidad, as well as a number of other places um, where Catholic and British all kind of intermingled and had all sorts of conversations and debates. So I'm really excited to get into this book and Carly to welcome you to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much. I'm happy to participate. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Sure. Um, My name is Carly Keogh, uh, and I'm a professor of history and uh, Canada Research Chair in Atlantic Canada Communities at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia. And I decided to write this book because after the first book that I wrote, which was about women religious and Catholic identity in Scotland... I started to think about um, where I come from in, you know, my my past. I, I, c- I come from a small island um, off Nova Scotia called Cape Breton. And one of the things that was always really curious to me was... All of the people that seemed to surround me of Scottish descent were Catholic and yet Catholicism didn't seem to be part of the Scottish story when I was living and working in Scotland. And so I wanted to explore um, how Catholics and Catholicism, Scots and Irish um, Catholics and their Catholicism functioned abroad, uh, what it looked like and and what it did. So that that kind of started me on, on this book journey. Fascinating.
1: Very interesting. I, I often find books um, can have quite interesting journeys when it's sort of like you go about your normal life and then you notice a thing, and go, hmm. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, and then inevitably go, oh, well, someone must have written a book. Let's go read it. And then go, oh, wait. Oh, no, I have to do it. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, Thank you for bringing us into the book um, in that way. I'd love to uh, kind of continue our introduction to the book with obviously some of the kind of definitional items in it. So could you tell us a bit about how and where you focus the book geographically and in terms of time and sort of how you decided that this time and this place was going to be your focus?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, It was really uh, interesting for me to go through that process of uh, not necessarily elimination, but considering uh, what I wanted to include. The time period was easier for me because it was clear that really from uh, the late 18th century to the mid-19th century, there was significant movement among Catholics um, to try to acquire respectability, citizenship, um, more recognition of their subjecthood than had been than they had been able to in the past. Um, and I had obviously been trained in Scotland. And so I was very aware of the effect that um, the, the end of Jacobitism or the, 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 the failure of the Jacobites at Culloden, what that had done to Highland culture and also Catholic culture in the Highlands. And so I, I was thinking, you know, the, eight, the late 18th century is a great place to start also because that's when they start really agitating for and acquiring um, relief legislation that gives them more rights. Um, and one of the first things that that they became able to do was participate in military service. And so that was always of interest to me. And then 1850 was sort of a cutoff point because um, after that, it gets really, really complicated, far more complicated than I think could have fit into one book. So I gave myself that bookend. In terms of the the geography, um, I did make conscious decisions about which colonies and territories to include. And, you know, if I could go back, I would probably include a couple more. But I did want to focus on those colonies that had the earliest and largest Catholic populations. And so Cape Breton, Um, parts of Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, obviously, in the north, Um, but Bermuda was also significant, and then Trinidad uh, was important because I I wanted to look at uh, a, a few colonies and territories that weren't always a focus of imperial scholars or scholars of the British Empire. Cape Breton, where I'm from, gets overlooked a lot, and yet it had a majority Catholic population, And so I was really curious about that. And then what I started to think about, too, is like all of these places seem to be on the fringe. They never seem to be included in the main story. And yet they were absolutely central to the survival, in my opinion, the survival of the empire, um, but also the survival and growth of of Catholicism in places like what would become Canada um, and and down um, in the more southern districts in the in the West Indies or Caribbean, so for me, I was kind of curious and wanted to see what what they could tell us about the story of Britishness, but also um, the British British imperial progress. Mm.
1: As I said, lots of interesting things when you start <laughs> off being curious and just yeah. kind of investigate and keep poking at it. Yeah, a little nosy, actually. <laughs> yeah, what was going on there? You know, a little bit of detective work, you know, pulling things out, poking at things. Lots of great books come from that. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about kind of one of the strands that you mentioned as being um, a sort of thing hanging around, like part of these debates around what it meant to be British, the role of Catholics in the empire. And of course, that's Catholic emancipation. So I was wondering if you could help us understand a bit why this was on the political agenda in the late 1700s um kind of what were the debates generally about at this point in time and sort of why was in a lot of senses sort of the tide rising to finally lead to some kind of catholic emancipation
0: yeah so um in in the the late 18th century it was really you know i use the term emancipation but it was catholic relief and it was basically removing some of the penal restrictions that have been imposed upon them And a big reason for that is because Britain had been involved in some very serious international wars, and fundamentally they were running out of soldiers. And so they needed to be able to tap new resources. One of those um, resources was Ireland, um, and another were uh, soldiers, potential soldiers in the highlands of Scotland. Um, And so you actually get a lot of Catholic agitation in the late, really after 1750, people starting to say, um, we would like to be included in the empire. We would like to be included as subjects. We are loyal. Um, Why aren't we allowed to serve? Um, And they're petitioning, you know, really important figures like Dundas, especially the Scottish Highlanders, the landed Highlanders um, are are saying, look, we could raise a regiment for you right now. Just give us the opportunity. Um, But things happened faster in Ireland and in England and Wales than they did in Scotland. So the first... Um, Catholic Relief Act comes in in the late 1770s and it excludes Scotland in fact um, because the anti-catholicism in Scotland was so vicious and so rife that they just it wasn't going to go and so in Scotland it only really receives its first emancipation or relief legislation in 1793 at just in time for the next big conflict that Britain was involved with so it could you know tap into those soldiers. So it's on the agenda there, but you also have, uh, and, and um, there's there's some work done on, on the Irish that's really important in terms of the growth of the middle class, and Catholics starting to say, look, um, we have a right to be included in how we move our societies forward. We do not want to be excluded anymore. We have money, we have growing influence and we really want to um, participate in this process of empire building. And so they themselves are starting to agitate. The Irish do it uh, much more. I think um, they're more bold and brave partly because um, they, they were uh, not as suppressed. The Catholicism in Ireland wasn't as suppressed as it was in Scotland, and the Scots are more quiet, um, but they are agitating behind the scenes, and they are speaking to people at very high political levels to try to gain some um, ground back that many, for example, in the Highlands lost because of Jacobitism.
1: Hmm. As a military historian myself, I always like it when the explanation is, because war. Uh, <laughs> yep. So that that makes a lot of sense, um, particularly if we think of kind of what else is happening with the British Empire um, at this time period. Um, But to just pull it out a little bit more, what exactly was the draw? So if that's kind of the um, is why the Empire might want to allow Catholics in, right? It gives them more soldiers, realistically, is a big part of it. But what was the draw for the Catholic, Scots and Irish individuals to be part of empire, to be part of colonial settlement.
0: Yeah, that's actually fascinating. And it kind of links with a project that I'm, I'm exploring now, which builds upon this foundation that this book created. But the draw was basically they could have religious freedom abroad that they couldn't have at home. Um, they could also acquire, in some cases, significant wealth and influence locally, and they could acquire land and so, you know, where I'm from in Cape Breton Island, the stuff I'm working on now is is looking at how Catholics were really, really um, successful in acquiring significant tracts of land um, to set themselves up in new settlements. But they could kind of reinvent themselves as loyal subjects and citizens in, co- in colonies that in territories that needed them, because you know, when I use the term Atlantic fringe in my title. It was also because the places that I'm focusing on were not the, you know, um, top rated, if you want to use that term. Uh, call it those. They weren't the top rated colonies that you know people would be necessarily drawn to. Catholics kind of went to the places that were more accepting of them because they were desperate for settlers. And that was the case in um, the Northeast Atlantic, so the the colonies and territories that I've mentioned, um, but also in the Caribbean. They often went to the islands that were, you know, they they had more opportunities. So after the Treaty of Paris in 1763, um, you had the seeded colonies, in, and a lot of Catholics started going There because they could. So they were opportunists, they were pragmatists, um, and they were doing what they could to create new and more prosperous lives for themselves that they just simply couldn't access back in the United Kingdom.
1: And to be clear, they couldn't access it for legal reasons in the United Kingdom.
0: Legal reasons, but also exclusion. So there were a lot of legal restrictions in place. You know, Catholics couldn't inherit land, they couldn't be guardians of children, they couldn't even be educated, (laughs) which is, you know, very difficult to imagine now. Um, But when they go abroad, they can start to create all of the infrastructure um, and all of the privileges or access the privileges that they just couldn't get at home. So it was legal, um, but it was also deep-seated anti-Catholicism in many parts of British uh, society.
1: Mm. Well, that would be a draw, and even to go to places that were the less popular colonies, really. Um, So then, obviously, as we've already sort of hinted at, um, this changes, right? The empire has some pretty big incentives um, to open it up for Catholics to be soldiers, if nothing else. Um, And you document how kind of this maybe it sounds like sort of one narrow thing actually changes a lot of things around what it means to be British and kind of what that identity allows that maybe starts to work against some of these more prejudice-based restrictions rather than purely the legal ones. So can you help us understand kind of how, what was changing about the idea of British identity in a way that Catholics now could be more part of both domestic Britishness, but also imperial Britishness?
0: Yeah, so there was a a Scottish scholar, um, his name was Bernard Aspinwall, and he uh, was a historian of the Catholic Church in Scotland. And he wrote a lot about this idea of British Catholics in Scotland and British Catholics. And it could be that because I was Canadian living and working in Scotland, I was maybe able to see things in a different way um, because I wasn't so immersed in the society that I kind of could step back and and question things. And one of the things that I did start to wonder was if all of these people were born and raised, and in my case, the case study was Scotland, were born and raised in Scotland, but they weren't allowed to say they were Scottish or people said they didn't belong, And then they also said they weren't allowed to claim Britishness. What did that mean? And and I didn't buy it for a second. And I thought about this broader, in my opinion, false narrative of Protestant Britain as being exclusive. Um, I don't agree that Britain was a Protestant um, collection of nations. I believe that there were a lot of constituencies from the four nations themselves, but also the populations within the four nations and so I, you know, when I'm thinking about Britishness, when you start to look at the participating groups in building the empire, you actually see a lot of different people who were very engaged with the imperial program who identified not just as British, but as Scottish, as Catholic, as Irish, as Welsh. Um, so there were multiple identities at play here. And I wanted to open that up and sort of challenge a little bit about Um, you know, the Kali thesis has been amazing because it has actually gave us the opportunity to talk about these things. I don't agree with it. And in fact, a lot was left out of that. But it did give us the opportunity to question like, wait a second, how can we how can we say, you know, Protestant Britain when by the time Ireland enters the Union, 25% of the population is now Catholic? What do we do with these important minorities that were as engaged as their neighbors and so i was i was curious about looking at britishness um from a different perspective and kind of challenging it because i didn't agree so <laughs> that's, that's long and <laughs> short
1: of it <laughs> well as we said you know curiosity is a good stimulus not agreeing with something and wanting to uh, put a different option out there is probably another good one for research <laughs>
0: Hopefully, that's what we're supposed to keep doing, right? So Exactly, exactly. Um, well, I want to kind of
1: stay on this for a moment, because I think one of the things that was really interesting about your discussion of kind of how British identity was changing was this idea of kind of the multiple labels, right? Today, we might think of, for example, um, someone calling themselves I don't know, Asian-American or um, South Asian-British or whatever, right, having multiple kind of identities. Um, But you show that this is not just something kind of now, that there were all sorts of different ways that people had identities, whether it was based on class or jobs, or they were Welsh, but also English or, you know, or also British, sorry. Um, And that there were all kinds of different textures in a lot of ways different groups within kind of big monolithic seeming populations of kind of protestant brits catholic brits you know th- those are really really big categories and something i really appreciated was that um we've been talking in some senses of kind of scots and irish catholics as being sort of one group but you do go into more nuance within that in the book um and i was particularly interested to see that kind of Despite what maybe you expect if they're both sort of marginalized, minoritized communities, there were some pretty significant tensions between the Scottish Catholics and the Irish Catholics. Um, I'm wondering if you can maybe help us understand kind of what those beefs were and how they translated in the colonial sphere
0: yeah. so um, this was really fascinating for me to discover. I don't know what other North Americans experience when they kind of go over to study or begin their research process in the u k. But for me, a naive Canadian um, who was in a grew up in a place where there were Irish and Scottish communities, right? And then I went over thinking, that everybody got on, and then really, really quickly realized as I started looking into uh, Catholicism in Scotland, they really did not um, want to have much in common with their Irish co-religionists. They they didn't like them. They were frustrated by them. They felt that they were that their religious culture was being threatened by them. And so that really gave me uh, an insight into, okay, wait a second, these two peoples have to be considered separately because they didn't share very much. In the religious culture, the Catholicism was very, very different. The Irish didn't make an effort to really hide the fact that they were Catholics, whereas the Scots did. They they couldn't practice um, their faith. I mean, there's been some really wonderful discoveries uh, And Twitter's actually quite good for this, but you know, mass stones in the highlands where Catholics could not, they had to meet secretly to celebrate mass because they weren't allowed to. And so when you start understanding the cultural differences that existed between Ireland and Scotland, you start to understand how this may have affected their movement and activities abroad in the empire. And that certainly is the case when you look at Atlantic Canada. Um, what would become Atlantic Canada, you start to see these were very, very different people. But what's quite interesting is um, they were both pragmatic and they were, and I've mentioned this before, they were both opportunistic groups. Um, And they were very prepared to take the opportunities that empire provided um, to not just establish themselves in settlements, but to expand and build those. And then when they become secure, and that's the next part of the work I'm doing now, when they become secure, then they start again with the tension um, and the kind of, I don't want to say fighting, but the the, um, jockeying for position, who is going to be in control of what. Um, and in, the, in Tr- Trinidad, what was so interesting was that um, you see that with uh, not the Irish and the Scots, but between the, the Irish and the French and the English clergy are actually asked to lead because, first of all, they're trusted more. But second of all, um, the Fr- <laughs> French have sort of, I've read documents that have said, you know, gosh, can we at least have an English person in charge because we can't deal with the Irish at all. And so you see all of these different Catholic constituencies that you think might be united uh, in the colonial world, but they absolutely are not.
1: And so what maybe there's an example that would um, sort of like what exactly were they jockeying over? Was it differences in sort of how rights were done? Like what maybe um, there's a Canadian I I know in the book, there are a number of really helpful examples to um, distill this out. Maybe you could explain one to us.
0: Yeah, so I think um, where I see them very clearly, uh, and I'll just use an example of Nova Scotia, um, and this would be later in the period of the book um, in the 19th century, towards the mid-19th century, the establishment of universities or colleges. And so you have the Irish Catholics setting up uh, institutions, and you have the Scots Catholics setting up institutions. Now, these are remarkable in themselves because, again, um, the idea that uh, the Scottish Catholics could found a university in Scotland was just, you know, pie in the sky thinking. And yet they did that in the early 1850s in Nova Scotia with St. Francis Xavier University. Um, and in, in Halifax, you have an Irish Catholic college, St. Mary's, Um, established and so what they're doing is they're actually trying to control who gets to decide what Catholic culture in a given place looks like who gets to be in charge of it who gets to run the show um, and 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 that is is really interesting also women religious come into it too because you have a significant number of Irish um, women religious who start to populate the colonies and they're basically running um, the educational infrastructure. Which is also important on another level because it it's enabling a Catholic system of education um, and enabling Catholic kids to go to school. And again, many of their parents would have been excluded from that. So, like, there are loads and loads of examples. Um, it one that I'm looking at right now in Cape Breton is actually where you know the Irish and the Scots came together because they were frustrated and concerned about the influence that outsiders, particularly Quebec clergy, might actually exert over what they saw as their space. And so, and the same thing, you see this actually happen with the the Irish and Scottish and English colleges in the continent. Um, Often those colleges are very distinct and they don't want very much to do with each other and they're quite frustrated with each other. But then when the Italians seem to be coming in to exert some kind of authority or control over you know, what they see as their church, they club together pretty pretty quickly. And so it's it seems to be this flow that just happens and, you, and there's constant responses to whatever comes up um, at a given time or place.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. Thank you for um, taking us through that. I think the educational example is striking, particularly when you think of it in the context of um, Scotland and Ireland I mean can you imagine a Catholic Scottish university at that time period and yet look it's what's happening in what becomes Canada um really interesting but so I, I'm glad you mentioned women religious because we're going to get to them next Sorry, of. <laughs> okay. um but I am a military historian so we're going to go back to war for a moment then go back to education um because I am the interviewer so I get to decide and we're doing military first okay um, <laughs> So one thing that I found was really interesting, and we've kind of already touched on this, that your book looks at kind of big imperial policy and individuals kind of at the front of it and keeps going back and forth between them, which I think is a really helpful way of not just kind of outlining this law was passed at this point, people, there were this many people in this town on this year, but actually helping us kind of understand what in some senses it would have been like Um, And one of them is thinking about, okay, this law has changed. You now have Catholic men who can be soldiers. That means you now have a whole bunch of Protestant men who probably would not have interacted with Catholics beforehand, fighting alongside them. Um, And similarly, and perhaps more interestingly, you also talk about this on the female side with women religious, Catholic women religious being frontline nurses Um, and so again both of these being in quite kind of public ways of being Catholic really it's not about practicing in your own house I mean it's within the institution of the military it's within the institution of military medicine Um, so how did these kind of interactions within the institutions on sort of a personal level how did that impact this whole debate about kind of who gets to be British and what does it mean to be part of empire?
0: Yeah, this like, so I was fascinated with the military dimension of this. And in fact, when my research started to turn towards empire, it was actually because of a diary I had um, been working on. He was a a, a Roman Catholic uh, surgeon in the Royal Navy. And I was super interested in, in, you know, his diary and his experience. His name was Richard Carr McClement. And from what I've been able to gather, and this is something that I would love to do more work on, um, at a very grassroots level, when it comes to everyday soldiering or sailoring, um, people got on with their jobs, and they they had to be in combat together, and they had to support each other, and they ultimately had they they were there to ensure that they won um, a battle or they protected the interests of the of of Britain. And so there were stories that I came across where everyday soldiers um, they did acknowledge that they hadn't really been exposed to, say, many Catholic soldiers before, Um, but they were very happy to accept them um, once they kind of started to get to know them. This didn't mean that the Orange Order, for example, did not exist in the army. Um, it didn't mean that there wasn't, um, anti-Catholicism in the Navy. In fact, there was pretty significant anti-Catholicism in the Navy, but I think there is a really interesting opportunity when it comes to military service, because what I feel, and I'd be very keen to hear from other scholars on this, um, military, the military, both the army and the Navy provided early opportunities for Catholics when other disciplines or other professions were still slow. So it provided an opportunity for them. For example, in medicine, that you know, if they couldn't get a position, if Catholic doctors couldn't get a position in Ireland, for example, or Scotland, they were very welcome into the Royal Navy because the Navy needed doctors. The Navy was losing people, um, but and it was pr- pretty much prepared to take whomever it could get. And so, when you start, when you see people being exposed to each other. Uh, it it changes the dynamic and the diary. So I did read Richard um, McClellan's diary, and then um, the family. Somehow I, I got in touch with the family, and they shared um, the diary that belonged to his brother Frederick, who also went into the navy. And both of them talk about this really interesting camaraderie um, at kind of the just the the regular soldier uh, sailor level. In the officer class, it gets a little more complicated because there are power structures involved there um, but there still is this you know it, and that the folks i looked at were were, were medics um, there was this community of medics that didn't necessarily revolve around somebody's religious identity and that that was really really interesting for me to see and uh, I would I would really love the opportunity to do more work. I've been really focused on the navy. I did include the army in my book, but I was I was way I was way deeper into the navy. Um and so it's 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 fascinating when you think of the structure of the services though, inherently anti-catholic and that doesn't change for a long time and even in the early 20th century and I know I'm going way beyond my book um anecdotally Catholics who have served told me that they absolutely felt anti-Catholicism and they, you know, uh, were teased or given a a bit of a tough time on occasion. And so, you know, there are still challenges, but I do feel that the military and military service offered opportunities for integration that had not been there before. Mm. Um, And when it comes to women religious that was fascinating. Um, So uh, I did dip a little bit into the 1850s, so beyond my kind of bookend to deal with and consider women religious. Um, But they were in the Crimea, and they were in the Crimea, as you mentioned, in the front lines. um, And that was the first time a lot of men serving um, would have seen a nun. And like, these were sisters, they weren't nuns. But to them, they were nuns. And so the fact that these women were on the front lines providing care to soldiers who were injured or dying, um, I think that it did have a really important effect on changing perceptions. Maria Lutty, um, an Irish scholar, she actually edited the Crimea War, uh, Crimean War journals for the Sisters of Mercy, um, where they wrote about their experience and they wrote about what they saw. Um, And it's it's fascinating. And so like when you think about British campaigns, most people would not think about nuns. And yet they were serving as nurses there. So Florence Nightingale, for example, was not the only one there. Right. She did not represent kind of the nurses, the nurses on the front lines by herself. There was a, a lot of Catholic women there, too.
1: Fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think there's a lot of research um, in a lot of different wars and a lot of different time periods around kind of how the military as an institution can sometimes accidentally (laughs) open things up for people. Um, And to see it highlighted in this context where you show kind of that day to day, people could get on with things and maybe have more opportunities, even though, as you talked about, the institution was not nice about it on a structural level. Um, There was kind of a split between the actual experience and the policy thing, which again, thank you for including both elements of it in the book so that we can understand kind of that gap.
0: Yeah, um, if I could add just one other thing on the military dimension, which I thought was fascinating, Um, and and it did vary depending on where um, people were actually placed, and so some commanding officers were permitted or some commanding officers permitted their men to attend mass because they were supposed to, Um, you know, they were getting directives from above that said, allow your, your men to to attend mass, but some didn't. And so it really was up to the individual commanding officer. And there was a lot of variation there, which I thought was fascinating. But one thing that was also interesting was um, when there was a Catholic who died at sea, for example, the responsibility, if there wasn't um, a Catholic clergy person on board, and there wasn't because they weren't allowed, um, the responsibility for the burial at sea and uh, kind of dealing with those spiritual and, and, and you know, um, those rituals that are associated with death, it fell to the highest ranking Catholic officer on board. And often that was the medic. And so, what you have are these people who are responsible for care and medicine and treating you know injured injured sailors, but they are also taking on a responsibility of almost religious leadership um, in a very structured imperial space like the navy, the the Royal mm-hmm. Navy. And so that for me, was super interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Very interesting, particularly thinking from the Scottish point of view of Catholics that would have been used to hiding their religion until quite recently. And now you're on a ship and you kind of are called on to do something very publicly Catholic. Interesting. All right. Well, I did promise that we'd move back to the educational side after the military discussion. Um, So I'm wondering if you can continue telling us a bit about um, how kind of important really Catholic religious personnel, both men and women, were in active imperialism in Canada, particularly around education.
0: Yeah, so I'm a believer in the fact that education is a very important method of social control, and um, and so I I focus mostly on women religious because in my opinion they were they were the leaders here. They may have had to kind of deal with clergy, uh, clergymen, and, and their whims, and often they were whims, uh, but women really got. Um, they rolled their sleeves up, they established schools for kids, young children. Um, And they were very connected with, you know, the the narrative of the empire, and and how you're raising good subjects, good Catholic children, uh, who follow rules, who do what they're told. And the women religious, um, their numbers were expanding significantly over the course of the 19th century, for a number of reasons, some of which because they believed they had a vocation, uh, some of which, some of whom, sorry, um, did not want to get married and have children, and some of whom were, were intellectuals who really wanted to make sure that they kept their minds going and that they were engaged with a project for the greater good, and so they were very engaged with colonial development. Um, they really started, and I, I, I did also again when it comes to women religious, I had to expand beyond 1850 because. They, their numbers really only started to grow and expand after that period. So, for example, in Canada, you get their presence after the mid 19th century, because then that's when they start to arrive. And boy, do they arrive in big numbers. And boy, do they start to establish religious communities um, and small and large um, Educational institutions. Again, one of the colleges at St. Saint, Saint Francis Xavier University uh, was a female college, and I believe that St. FX graduated the first woman in North America, and it's because of women religious. And so that is significant. <laughs> and I think um, when you are looking at the development of, a, of what would become a country like Canada, uh, you can't exclude them from the story, just like you can't exclude them from the story of the development of the Scottish nation, which I didn't, I, you know, they were front and center in, in this creation of a Scottish identity in the 19th uh, century. Um, it's almost like they were trying to be as Scottish as they possibly could just so that they could be accepted.
1: Mm. Again, a theme that comes up in similar sort of studies of minoritized groups and expanding ideas of identity. Um, So I'd love to kind of move our geographic focus from the cold bits of Canada down to the Caribbean. Um, So we're staying on the Atlantic fringe, but we're moving to the warmer parts of it. Um, And one thing, I mean, you already mentioned that um, some of the islands that ended up being British, at least during this time period, um, had a lot of different populations going on, even just within the Catholic side, um, whether it's Scottish, Irish, but also French. Um, Obviously, the Caribbean islands, many of them underwent many changes of sort of sovereignty and ownership. Um, And this, as you show in the book, led to some particular challenges for Imperial Britain in figuring out what to do with some of these Caribbean colonies that were pretty Catholic, pretty mixed, um, and maybe didn't have a long history within the British Empire prior. I was really interested to see that one of the things you show kind of comes out of this was actually that, in some instances, the Imperial British state apparatuses actually ended up supporting Catholic institutions in the area. How did that happen?
0: <laughs> this was super fascinating. i I couldn't believe what I was finding when it came to uh, different um, islands in the Caribbean. So the main focus was Trinidad, but it also included, um, Dominica and Grenada and all of these other places, and uh, and so um, it was really interesting for me to think about why on earth did the um, uh, why on earth did the um, British government start providing f- support and not just support, but they were providing money. They were actually, in some cases, buying um, hosts. So the the bread that you would receive during um, Mass with wine, uh, which is, you know, transubstantiation was a big problem for many Protestants. So I I saw that and I was like, where on earth, what's going on here? They they provided furnishings for priests' houses. They um, provided funding for um, Catholic education opportunities. And a big reason for this is because they had to find a way to control populations of enslaved people who were about to become free. And Trinidad is a fascinating example for so many reasons, but it was acquired by Britain formally in the early 19th century. And there was a lot of confusion, in fact, about what what the role of the sort of English Catholic Church was going to be in managing the Catholic affairs of Trinidad. Um, And it was only, I believe, in 1817, and I could get my dates wrong. It was a while since I wrote this. Um, But I think it was only in 1817 when a a, a British bishop first arrives, and his name is Buckley, and he's English. And he's English because the British government doesn't trust anybody else. And then the next bishop to come in is um, an Irish-descended man who was raised in London and and so there was significant support for attempting to create um, an infrastructure of Catholic control. And because the, the big um, uh, elephant in the room is the fact that the majority of the people on these islands were enslaved.
1: Mm. And... So building on that, one of the things that you um, show in the book is obviously that the Catholic Church, um, not not to put too fine a point on it, one of the issues with Catholic emancipation in the British Empire is the idea that the Catholic Church is ruled by Rome, not anywhere in Britain. Um, and this has obviously historically been a problem. Um, we won't go into Mary, Queen of Scots, etc. cetera. Um, but, you know, there's a whole thing there. Um, and yet, what I found really interesting in this sort of discussion of Trinidad and the Caribbean Islands is um, you there, there's, as you said, kind of support for it from the British state for Catholicism. Um, but on this point of slavery and what happens with the people who are about to be free, um, you also discuss how the Catholic Church's stance on slavery, more specifically, the fact that they don't really have a statement against slavery and there's a lot of sort of waffling around um how did this sort of play into kind of catholic relations within the british empire given sort of this place and this time
0: so the catholic church there is a lot of work that needs to be done on its position on enslavement and it in my opinion was pro-slavery because it didn't speak out against it it did not have a statement a strong statement against um black enslavement until well into the 19th century and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that France and Spain were still major enslaving nations until late in the 19th century and Rome got money from them and so that's something where I really you know I call on colleagues uh, researchers around to start looking into this um when it comes to on the ground in the Caribbean, there was uh, an absolute need to... Um, the church was very pragmatic. It's always been pragmatic. And so it was very prepared to work with the British government um, to ensure um, some measure of control over the enslaved population in exchange for privileges that they you know, could take for granted when a colony was under France, but could no longer when it was considered... when it was a British possession. And so you have... Um, a lot of, um, you know, the the British government funds Catholic schools because it funds a lot of schools in, you know, 18 in the 1830s as they're trying to get kids into into school to, you know, this idea of controlling a population. Um, but it also uh, you see the Catholic Church locally setting up chapels at the edge of a plantation because a lot of planters were complaining that they their labor labor force was leaving. Of course it was leaving. <laughs> you know, a lot of people did not want to stay where they had been enslaved. But the, the church set up chapels because they were Catholic, and so they felt if we can provide them with the opportunity um, for mass or to practice their faith, they might stay. And work on a plantation, and so the the Catholic Church is absolutely complicit um, in supporting Britain and its system of enslavement. Um, I wrote another article called "Colonial Collaborators," which looks at the relationship between um, Britain and Rome in, in Trinidad, uh, and it's 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 very interesting when you start scratching below the surface. So I uh, I haven't been satisfied, to be honest, with much of the work that has. Come out. There's some stuff that's really important that's starting to be done now, um, but up until a few years ago, I was not satisfied with the work that had been published by scholars uh, on the the church's relationship with enslavement. It was too gentle, hmm. in my opinion
1: don't be satisfied. Tell us more. Go dig. We'll have you back next time you write a book. Th- okay. I'm, I'm very in favor of poking at things and going, hang on a second. Um, so very exciting to hear that you are also on um, sort of on that side of history of let's poke at things and see what happens. Um, but I do want to ask you a little bit more about this book, if I may. So the, C- the Caribbean aspect is really quite interesting. Um And there's loads more detail in the book about particular people and how they interact with different communities for listeners. Um, If you're interested in that, the book does really go into um, a lot of that as well. Um, So I want to highlight that. But as my kind of last substantive question, um, you've just helped us understand sort of in a lot of senses, what's unique about sort of Catholic and British interactions when it comes to Trinidad. And we've spoken a bit about that sort of unique interaction in, for example, the Navy, um, as well as around the idea of education and the establishment of universities. So as my last question, um, to kind of go all the way back up to the super cold bit of the fringe from the very warm bit, um, could you likewise help us understand what was significant and unique about relations between Catholics and the British state in
0: Newfoundland? Newfoundland is a fascinating example of Catholic participation in the British Empire. Um, Newfoundland was one of the earliest colonies of England and then Britain. Um, and what is really interesting about that colony is that they, the, the colonial administrators had tried really, really hard to prevent... Settlement there, year-round settlement. They wanted it to be a fishing station and they wanted it to be, um, they wanted, they did not want to encourage any kind of settlement. And so, for example, when Irish fishers went over to work for the season, they, the, the colonial administrators, often military men, tried to make sure that everybody left. At the end of the season but what started to happen was you started getting more people that were hiding or deciding oh, i'm not going back i'm going to stay and make a life here and you actually start to have a gigantic irish population in newfoundland many of whom were catholic but also many of whom are protestant uh, and what is interesting there is you really start to see the replication of sectarianism uh, irish sectarianism in newfoundland in the 19th century and perhaps the best person who's written on this, is Willine Keogh. Um, she's at Simon Fraser University in, in British Columbia, but she has written an awful lot on the sectarian tension in Newfoundland. But what you also see in Newfoundland is the really strict control that, was started, to be ac- that started to be acquired by bishops um, who didn't really want to support lay uh, initiative, who wanted to crack down on kind of people who weren't doing what they were told. Um, And it was all in an effort to, again, gain a foothold for the church and for it to be um, kind of an unrivaled power in Newfoundland. But it's interesting as well, because Newfoundland doesn't join Canadian Confederation until, I believe it's 1949. So it is still a separate Well, it's a territory, not a colony as well. It's a territory um, into the 19th century. And so its identity is is also quite distinct from what would be the colonies of Nova Scotia, Cape Breton Island, uh, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick. These are all neighboring colonies. These are all colonies that would become part of Atlantic Canada. And yet Newfoundland was distinct and separate. And I think part of that is because Uh, of the Irish Catholic element there and the distrust that British colonial authorities actually had. In other places, it was more mixed. And yet in Newfoundland, it was not. Um, But this again is something that I, I would, you know, yield to scholars like Jerry Bannister or Wollinkyo because they really are the experts on Newfoundland, but it does stand out as at once a very loyal place. And then also a place where colonial administrators were really nervous Um, about the potential for Catholic radicalism on the Mm. island. And therefore, a very
1: interesting part of kind of borderland studies um, and sort of understanding the fringes of polities and how identities change. So in a lot of ways, a very good sort of summary encapsulation of a lot of what the book does. (laughs) Thank you. So, there we go. Um, so before I let you go, I do obviously have my kind of traditional last question, um, and helpfully for me as an interviewer, you've already sort of teed us up a bit for us, so I was wondering if you might be willing to give us a bit of a sneak preview for what you might be working on now after this book.
0: Yeah, so um the next project that I'm working on is actually about um so that the book that we're talking about now. Uh, actually set up a foundation, um, for what the relationship was like between Catholics and the British Imperial state at home, um, with an understanding of how it started to expand, uh, into empire. The next book is actually using that foundation to consider, okay, when they actually got to the colonies, then what did they get up to? And this is when we get into the area of settler colonialism. Um, and what I'm doing is I'm looking at, uh, What did settler colonialism look like in Atlantic Canada and how was it enabled? And this actually brings in um, the Caribbean because what I'm finding is that a lot of the settlements in Atlantic Canada were actually enabled by the north-south trade that happened with the Caribbean and that trade was enabled because of the enslavement of black people on the islands. And so when you have Scots who invest a lot of money in the Caribbean, and then they create settlements in, for example, Prince Edward Island, we have to be prepared to make those connections and understand those links. Um, And when you look at a place like Cape Breton Island, and you look at how the Scots and the Irish were, you know, for, for a number of reasons had to leave their home nation. So we know the Scots were many of them experienced clearance in the early 19th century um, into the mid 19th century, they brought with them trauma, but then they exerted colonialism upon the indigenous people. And so I'm looking at land grants in Cape Breton, which shows um, the Mi'kmaq people completely surrounded by Scots in, in about 10 years in many places. And so, the foundation that Empire and Emancipation built is enabling me to look at, okay, when they got to the colonies, then what did they do to secure their power and their status in these new societies? And that's, I think, that's, that's harder, I think, emotionally to engage with in some ways. I could keep a distance uh, with the other book, but with this research, sometimes I just have to stop and think, okay, that's enough for today. <laughs> that's fair.
1: Um, I mean, I think with any big research project, it's a marathon, not a sprint, Yeah, Yeah. it absolutely is a marathon. And sometimes we need those breaks. Um, We need those moments of, you know what, I'm going to put that down for right now. Um, and whether that's I'm going to go research another bit or whether I'm going to go off and teach something for a while um, or whether it's simply I'll take pick this back up tomorrow morning. Um, that's a really important part of the process. So thank you for both sharing with us um, kind of the topic of what you're working on and also a bit of an insight into kind of how you're approaching it um, to remind us, you know, we are human <laughs> and researching <laughs> yeah. history is not um, sort of something that is Removed from the present day in a lot of senses. So thank you. For oh that.
0: yeah, I wouldn't be. Uh, I wouldn't suggest a career as a historian for people who want to be cheered up every day. It's not that kind <laughs> yeah. of job. Yeah, that's not
1: that's not how that works. Um, yeah. Yeah,
0: no, and you'll enough. know, especially as a military historian, mm-hmm. goodness. Yeah, that's not how that works.
1: Um, well, thank you for sharing your current work with us, and um, but particularly for going in such wonderful depth through um, your most recently published book, which again, for our listeners, is titled Empire and Emancipation, Scottish and Irish Catholics at the Atlantic Fringe from 1780 to 1850, published last year, 2021, from the University of Toronto Press. Dr. Carly Keo, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having
1: me.